Well, indeed, uh, Ben and his wife Emily, our daughter-in-law, send their greetings to you. Those of you who were here last year, uh, Ben will be taking off soon for Tanzania in East Africa, where he and two of our associate teachers will be teaching. A uh, wonderful ministry there that the Lord has given us. And um, my wife Tracy has some allergy problems tonight, so she's still in the hotel. But she and I are very happy to be in Australia. Uh, I've been here twice before. She's been here once before. And uh, we were always in the east. We've never been to Perth, so this is our first time on this side of the country. <clears throat> and we, we love it very much. By the way, please forgive my accent. I have been practicing this for decades, and I fear by now it's permanent, so I cannot help you by trying to adjust it, I, I fear. Well, as John said, our ministry is called Teaching Truth International, and we do teach in uh, various countries in Africa and Asia and Latin America to pastors who do not have the opportunity to go to seminary. Um, and uh, it's, it's a great privilege to be able to serve the Lord in that capacity. Um, and so as a missionary, which is technically what I am, I would be irresponsible to not give you at least a little snapshot of the situation in the church around the world. Um, some people identify the global church in the condition of having a global theological famine. And I think that's a pretty good description for our brothers and sisters in many places around the world. One statistic brings that out quite clearly, I think. There are about two million evangelical churches around the world, depending on whose statistics you look at. That sounds like great news, and it is. But the rest of the story is that 85% of those churches don't have a pastor. Or they have someone functioning in that role who's never been trained to do the ministry. Our ministry, Teaching Truth International, goes to those places where we have partners. They bring in pastors from <clears throat> several countries, in some cases, uh, sometimes really in the bush, in places in Africa and Latin America. We come in for two or three weeks, and we teach courses to those dear brothers and uh, help prepare them and train them to be able to preach and teach God's Word. Um, and I might say that since I am really a teacher and not a preacher, my preaching, when I get to do it, sounds a little like teaching. And uh, if you were to ask my students around the world, some of them might say, yeah, well, your teaching sometimes sounds a little like preaching. So we, we may have kind of a hybrid message tonight. Um, I think the, uh, the words might be up here that our brother read a while ago will be in Titus 2. If you want to, please turn to that passage. <clears throat> Titus 2, verses 11 through 14. Either if you have a uh, hard copy Bible or on your phone. Can you imagine what the Apostle Paul would think if I said, turn to Titus 2 on your phone? I, I suppose he would, yes, thank you. <laughs> that may be right. <clears throat> Paul's friend and sometimes traveling companion, Luke, ends the book of Acts, which Luke wrote, and with Paul under house arrest. We know that from chapter 28, verses 30 and 31, because Luke tells us that Paul was under house arrest in his own rented apartment. But that's not the end of Paul's story. Most New Testament scholars believe that Paul was released after that, which is sometimes called his first Roman imprisonment, and he took a fourth missionary journey. And on that journey, he took another of his buddies, Titus, whom you are familiar with, I'm sure, and um, 
they came to the island of Crete in the eastern Mediterranean Sea. And then when Paul moved on in the journey, he left Titus there on Crete to organize the churches on that island. We know that because that's what Paul tells Titus in chapter 1, verse 5. And Paul, in this letter, this short little letter, is reminding Titus of his assignment and how he is to approach that and what he is to do and what he is to teach the Christians on the island of Crete. We don't know for sure where Paul was when he wrote this letter, but it seems likely that he may have been in Corinth, the same city to whom he wrote the letters to the Corinthians. And the reason we suspect that, if you were to look at a map, Crete is located in the eastern part of the Mediterranean, and Paul tells us in 312 that he is on his way to Nicopolis to spend the winter there. Nicopolis is, on a, is a port city on the northeast shore of the Adriatic Sea, the Aegean Sea, up northwest of Corinth. And if you look on a map, going from Crete up to Nicopolis would pretty much take you through Corinth. We know Paul had friends in Corinth, so it seems that that's a reasonable place for him to stop. And while he was there, he found two of his friends, Zenos, all we know about him is Paul says he's a lawyer, and Apollos, whom we know from Acts and Corinthians. And so Paul took the opportunity to send a letter to Titus with those two brothers because they're going to and through Crete. 3.13 is where Paul tells us that. We might think, well, why didn't Paul just send a letter in the postal service? Well, the Roman Empire did have a postal service, but it was reserved only for official government documents and government personnel, and Paul didn't qualify. So Christians and other private people at the time had to send letters just as with a private friend whom they trusted. And that's what Paul does with Apollos and Zenos. He writes Titus, gives it to these brothers, says, as you're going through Crete, deliver this to Titus, so he has my instruction for his ministry there. That's a little historical background to this letter. Now let's begin to move toward our text, some context of where we are within Paul's writing. We enter the text where Paul has just written instructions in the previous paragraph for how to live a godly life among other Christians. Not always so easy, you may have already found out at your young age. Paul says, here's how you live among other Christians. Our paragraph that we're going to look at is his explanation for that. He gives the basis for doing that. And the underlying point in this passage is this. Being saved by grace leads to obedience in life. Being saved by grace leads to obedience in life. And godly behavior comes from good theology. Sounds like something a teacher would say, I know. Godly behavior comes from good theology. However, we also know that just accumulating the right doctrine does not guarantee right living. However, not learning the right doctrine almost guarantees wrong living. If you don't know God's word, you can't apply it in your life. We cannot live what we have not learned. Well, my goal as we go through this text is, is very simple. It's two parts. By the time we end with this brief paragraph, I want us to, one, know and understand what Paul is saying. And two, I want us to have some idea of how to apply it in our lives. We want to interpret and then apply. All right, please follow along as I reread this passage, Titus 2, 11 through 14. 
For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. As we go through this text, I want us to be guided by Jesus' words in Matthew 4.4. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Every word. So we're not going to skim the passage. We're going to try to be obedient to what Jesus said. We're going to dig into it a little bit. The exposition begins in verse 11. For, Paul says, the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation for all people. When I'm teaching my students, I tell them, always look for these little transition words. For, because, therefore, that, in order that, so that. Those little transition words carry the logic of the author's argument. So when you're reading the text, when you're studying the text, don't just skip over them. Those are not throwaway words. Paul begins for, which could be translated because, it introduces an explanation or a reason or the basis for what Paul just wrote in the previous paragraph. As I said earlier, his instructions for godly living among other believers. He's just said, live this certain way because, now he's going to tell us why. The grace of God, Paul uses that as a summary phrase for all that God has done through Christ to save sinners. And we're going to see in this passage that grace continues as the means of godly living after salvation. In other words, we don't come to the cross for salvation and then say, thank you very much, God, that's great, but I'll take it from here. I don't need you anymore. The grace of God continues to teach us. We still need God's grace after you and I first believe in Jesus. What is this appearance, the grace of God has appeared? In the broad sense, God's grace appears in his word as a whole. In the narrow sense, it refers to the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, taking upon himself the limitations of humanity. If you want to cross-reference on that, the passage is Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Well, this truth is communicated to us in the gospel, implied in Paul's words, offering salvation. But now we come to a question, and this is one of the things I always emphasize with my students also. Ask questions of the text. If you want to understand it well, accurately, and deeply, ask questions. Why did Paul say this? Why didn't he say that? I would have expected him to argue a different way. Why does he argue the way he does? Ask questions of the text, and then dig in and try to find those answers. So the question here, what about this phrase, for all people? Is Paul subtly suggesting what is called universalism? Big word that means in theological terms that potentially everybody will be saved. Is that what Paul is saying? Well, some people read this verse by itself, always a dangerous thing to do. You want to look at the whole context and other cross-references on the same topic. 
But some people read this verse by itself, and they conclude falsely that God saves everyone. But there are many verses in the Bible that say the opposite, that God does not save everyone. And remember, the Bible never contradicts itself. Consider, in fact, Jesus' words right to the point. Remember, Jesus at times was very warm and fuzzy, and other times he was rather in your face. Consider what Jesus said in Matthew 25, 41 and 46. Speaking about the final judgment, Jesus says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And these will go away into eternal punishment. So no universalism. Well, that re-raises the question, what does our text mean when Paul uses that phrase, for all people? Paul is saying that the grace of God in salvation is available for all. But Christ's redemptive work on the cross is applied only to those who receive it by faith. In other words, anyone who will may come. But some refuse to come. And if you've shared the gospel with some of your uh, friends at uni or people you work with or on your sports team, maybe you've experienced that. You give the gospel in a, a clear, compelling way, and some don't want it. In fact, remember what Jesus said to the Jewish religious leaders in John 5.40? You refuse, you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And those were the Jewish religious leaders. Most of them did not accept the offer of eternal life from Jesus. So the summary of verse 11, what we've looked at so far, it says that God's grace has appeared in Christ offering salvation to all people. But God's grace does more than just save us, as we see in verse 12. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. So the grace of God teaches us. And Paul writes this in his old Greek language. Some of you may know, Paul did not write in our English language. He wrote in an old form of the Greek language. And we're going to back up a little bit to fifth grade. We're going to look at a little grammar here, and I'll explain this. When, when in our language, when we talk about the tense of a verb, we mean the time of the action. A past tense means I did something yesterday. A present tense means I'm doing it at this moment. A future tense says, I'm going to do it tomorrow. That's not how the tenses work in the Greek language that Paul writes in his verbs. That tense for them is more the kind of action rather than the time of action. So when Paul writes this in a present tense, it means a continuous action. The sense is the ongoing nature so what Paul is saying here is that God's grace continues. It keeps on teaching us through his word. So remember, the gospel first hits us with the saving message of Jesus Christ, but then the grace of God through his word keeps on teaching us a continuous, repeated action. So his grace is for salvation, and it's for this life, as long as we're in this world, indicated by Paul's phrase, in this present age. 
And what God's grace teaches us, at least in this passage, is how to live. We need to remember that God's game plan for us, his plan of redemption, is more than just taking us to heaven when we die. It is that, of course, and that's wonderful. That is absolutely spectacular, much greater than we can begin to imagine now. But that's not the whole thing. Even though that is our destination, God has adopted us into his family now. And he intends us to live in a way that honors him as our father. We don't want to disgrace the family name. And his grace through his word teaches us how to do that. Well, in this passage, Paul summarizes two different ways that God's grace continues to teach us how to live. First, negatively, telling us what not to do, and then positively, telling us what to do. First, on the negative side, we are to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. I think Paul uses that phrase as sort of a summary phrase for all of those things we chased as unbelievers, those things which also enslaved our souls. Well, the grace of God continues to teach us to turn away from those things. Why continually? Because for our whole lives, the world, the flesh, and the devil will continue to tempt us to return to those things. So the grace of God in his word continues to teach us to say no to those things. What we're taught positively, in other words, what the word tells us what to chase and pursue instead of those worldly passions, in other words, it replaces what we gave up in our old life with something better, which Paul calls a self-controlled, upright, and godly life. That threefold description seems aimed in three directions as I look about it and think through it. It's first inward toward ourselves, self-controlled, self-controlled. It is then outward toward other people, upright, respectable, that kind of idea, and upward toward God, a godly life. God's grace continues to teach us how to live in all three of those aspects of life. And if you think about it, That covers all the bases toward ourselves, toward others, toward God. And that kind of life is better than chasing the worldly passions. Why is that? Because God designed us to find our joy by living that way. Um, Let's remember that You know, as Christians, we say God is our creator. Yes, indeed, that is true. But logically, prior to creating us, he designed us a certain way. He made us a certain way, and he gave us the owner's manual to tell us how to find our greatest joy. Just like when you and I buy a new car or a new piece of machinery, the manufacturer, the designer, gives you an owner's manual. It says, if you follow what's in this book, this car, this piece of machinery will operate better. If you don't follow what's in here, you're going to make a wreck out of the thing. Well, that's, in effect, that analogy is what God has done with us. And, of course, the owner's manual is the Bible. 
by being in the word, God is telling us, here's how I designed you. If you live consistently with my instructions here, your life will be better. If you don't, you're going to make a wreck out of it. So that's why I say living this way is better than pursuing the worldly passions. And trying to find our joy by living the wrong way is like trying to brush your teeth with a whippersnipper. Now, I had to get some instruction from Brother John Main because we call those a weed whacker. <laughs> he corrected my Americanism. I said that you refer to them as a whippersnipper, but whatever you call it, I think the image is clear. If you try to brush your teeth with one of those things, that's not going to work. It's just going to cause pain and misery and suffering. In our fallenness, and remember, even though redeemed, we're still fallen creatures. We have a tendency to think we have to give up life's good things to follow Jesus. That's not true. That is not true. Our notion that we find joy by chasing the worldly desires is Satan's lie to steer us away from true joy. He's a liar. And his lies come through our society and many things. Certainly in our society, there are a lot of lies that try to steer Christians that way. I suspect the same is in your society because our two countries are very similar. You know, a few differences like weed whackers and whippersnippers. But, but our societies are very similar. And I'm guessing Satan is trying to tell you his lie to turn back to the old things. God's grace teaches the reality. We give up the bad things that prevent us from finding true joy, both now and in eternity. So don't buy Satan's lie, especially when you're young. That phrase, when you're young, at my age, that's a pretty big window but I'm especially referring to, you know, from the teens up into the early 30s, which is, from the looks of it, it's about 95% of you here. Now, why am I going to, I'm going to talk about you for just a minute. Why am I sort of focusing on you at this point? Because I believe you are Satan's second biggest target. The biggest target are pastors, Christian workers, missionaries, seminary professors, those in that kind of capacity. And you who are young, I think, are the second biggest target. And the reason is um, you've not lived enough life yet to have a lot of experience and to develop a lot of wisdom. If I were being more insulting, I would say you're gullible. But um, I'm, I, I don't want to quite come across that way. But, but the fact is, that's kind of true. Uh, when I was your age, I was an idiot. Um, you're, you're easily taken in by false information. And don't believe everything that you find on the Internet, if no one's ever warned you about that. So don't buy Satan's lie, especially if you're young. young. Tw- summary of verse 12. God's grace continues to teach us how to live after salvation. Well, as we live that way, we do something else. Note verse 13. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul writes our hope, that phrase, our hope, and the appearing with one definite article. We're going to play fifth grade English class again. He 
writes it with one definite article. You remember what a definite article is. In the Greek, it doesn't function exactly the same, but at this point, I'll explain what he's doing. When Paul does this, or any writer does that in Greek, refers to two things with one definite article, it means he's saying those two things are the same thing. He's describing one thing with two different ways of describing it. There aren't two different things. So, Jesus appearing is our hope. It's the same thing here. And Paul connects Jesus appearing with glory. You remember when Christ came the first time? He came in humility. He was not a powerful guy. He was a carpenter, ordinary guy. In fact, remember how he entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. He rode on a donkey. Um, In the ancient world, the donkey was a symbol of humility. It just carried stuff. like a ute today, what I call a pickup truck. John, again, has corrected me as a ute. If you've got something big or bulky or heavy, you don't want to carry that. You put it in the back of the ute and you drive it where you want it to go. That's what a donkey did in the ancient world. You put your big, heavy stuff on the donkey and said, we're going this way, and he carried it for you. Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey, and riding a donkey basically said, I'm a humble guy. I'm a simple, humble guy. In the ancient world, the people who were powerful rode horses. If you rode a horse, it said, I'm in charge. I'll tell you what to do, and you'll do it. That's what riding a horse said in the ancient world. Jesus rode a donkey. Do you remember how he returns, this appearing? Do you remember how he returns in Revelation 19:11? Riding that white horse. He's in charge. And written on his thigh, it says, King of kings and Lord of lords. And he comes to bring deliverance to those who accepted his humble grace the first time and to bring judgment on those who refused him. And we are waiting for his return in glory. Well, we have a significant theological dilemma on our hands in this verse. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Is Paul referring to one person or two people? In other words, is Paul referring to God the Father as one person and Jesus Christ the Savior as another person? Or is he referring to simply one person as God and Savior identified as Jesus Christ? Most New Testament scholars believe option Two, he's referring to one person, Jesus Christ, described as both God and Savior. And they offer three rather, rather compelling reasons why they draw that conclusion, and I agree with it. One reason is grammatical, one is contextual, and one is historical. I'll summarize each of these briefly. If we were in class, these would be on the exam, but I have great news for you. No exam tonight. So, some of you were beginning to get nervous. I put your hearts at rest. The grammatical reason why this is one person, it's the same point as I said before. God and Savior are linked with one definite article, indicating that Paul is referring to only one person, Jesus Christ. And let's remember, Paul is very precise in his theology and in his writing. If Paul did not believe Jesus is God, he would not have written this in a way to give the impression that he is God. So the first reason is this grammatical reason. Paul is talking about one person. 
The second reason is contextual. Paul connects the appearing with our great God. The appearing with that phrase, our great God. And whenever Paul uses this word appearing, he always refers to Jesus' return, never to the Father. And the Father's not the one who's going to appear anyway. We already know that going into this text. So Paul's reference to our great God cannot be about the Father. He is talking only about Jesus Christ. And still, there's a third reason why we can see this is only referring to Christ, the historical reason. Paul's phrase, God and Savior, was a a standard phrase, a set phrase in the Hellenistic language and culture and religions of that day. And it always referred to just one person. It was a phrase that was always spoken about one guy. So historically, this would have been very confusing for Paul's readers if he were suddenly referring to two people instead of one. This verse is saying, Jesus Christ is God. So the next time the Jehovah's Witnesses knock on your door, you have a little ammunition. The summary of verse 13. God's grace continues to teach us how to live while we wait for our Savior God, Jesus Christ, to return in glory. So what does our salvation look like, and what's the purpose of it? Verse 14. Referring to Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. If you've been watching, I'll bet some of you have noticed this already. In this paragraph, Paul has mentioned salvation from three different perspectives. Salvation past and present and future. Here in verse 14, Christ redeemed us in the past. In verse 12 and here in 14, he is purifying us for good works in the present. And in verse 13, he will return for us in the future. So, theologically, we would call this salvation, sanctification, glorification. God provides the full package. As Paul writes elsewhere in Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, and Paul's wording there is actually very strong, I am absolutely convinced of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. God will not fail with our salvation or our sanctification or our glorification. Let's talk a little about Christ's saving work. Paul uses one of the Christians' favorite words for centuries to be redeemed. We sing about being redeemed. We talk about the noun redemption. This was a word that was actually a a word for buying something in the secular culture of the ancient world. It referred to the ancient practice of going to a slave market, which was common in the Roman Empire. You could pay a price called a ransom. You could buy a slave. You could set him free. Paul uses that imagery quite a number of times in his letters for what Christ did for us. He paid the ransom price of his own blood, his own death on the cross, to buy us out of slavery of sin, to set us free. You and I are free 
And we are now Christ's private possession. We belong to him. In fact, Paul writes that rather pointedly to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 7.23, he says, You were bought with a price. And I don't see that as a metaphor. That's a real transaction. So we have changed our slavery to sin to slavery to Jesus Christ. What a wonderful exchange. Paul writes much about that in Romans 5, 6, and 7. We also see here God's sanctifying purpose. You see, the initial purchase that we've talked about of buying us out of slavery to sin is not the end of the deal. Jesus Christ intends to purify us in salvation. At that point in time when you first believe in Jesus Christ, we are immediately pure in our legal status before God, our standing in God's eyes. We are immediately pure in what's sometimes called our position before God. And the basis for this is 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The technical word is called imputation. It's a book-counting word. It means to credit something to someone's account, to, to make a mark in the ledger. We have a double imputation in that verse, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Our sin is credited, imputed, put on Christ when he's on the cross. And then God's judgment is poured out on our sin on Jesus. And the way I like to think of that, to have a visual image, is that Jesus is on the cross in front of me, and I'm behind him, and God's wrath is poured out on Jesus for my sin, which is on Jesus, and he's like a shield protecting me from God's wrath. Imputation is my sin being placed on Jesus on the cross, and then God pours out his wrath. But there's a second imputation in that verse from 2 Corinthians 5.21, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. When you and I believe in Christ, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, his perfect righteousness, is imputed or credited to our account so that God no longer sees us in our sin. He sees us in the righteousness of Christ. What a trade. Jesus takes my sin, my horrible millions of hell-bound sins. He takes those upon himself and gives me his perfect, holy righteousness. And God says, you are now justified. The doctrine of justification being the formal name of that. The doctrine, you know, the, the, the gospel plan of salvation is so much richer then when we just quote John 3.16, I'm not insulting the verse. It's probably the most beautiful one verse in the whole Bible. But when we study out what salvation included, it is fantastic. So the assignment is memorize 2 Corinthians 5.21 and be able to explain it. That will be on the exam. <laughs> so at the point we believe, we are immediately pure in God's eyes. But that's not what this passage is talking about. In our experience in this life, we're not yet completely pure. We all know that. We still sin. And if you say you don't, you just did. <laughs> so in this life, we're in the process of being purified, being sanctified, becoming more like Jesus Christ in our character and how we live. 
And that process continues throughout our whole life. And that's why we need God's grace in his word to continue to teach us. And what should our response be to all of this fantastic stuff that God has done through Christ for us? Being eager to do what is good. Look for details in the text. This is one of the things I always teach. Don't just read over it, skimming over it as though you've already squeezed every drop of truth out of every statement. Look for details. It doesn't just say to do good works. That's a true statement. Paul might have said that, and we would say, amen, that's true. We're saved to do good works. But he says, eager to do good works. That's more than just doing them. That means we live intentionally, deliberately looking for good works to do. You see the difference? The simple word, eager, brings that out. So Paul is very clear that we are not saved by doing good works. Let's make sure we're very emphatic on that. Most famous passage on that is Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Then 10 talks about doing good works after that, Titus 3.5, we don't have the time to jump over to the next chapter, but the same thing there. We're not saved by doing the good works, but the good works are the evidence that you and I are saved. Summary of verse 14. Christ saves us not only to go to heaven when we die, but to belong to him and to pursue good works as long as we live. Well, that's the somewhat deeper digging through the text, interpreting the text so we understand what it says. And now the question is, so what? What do I do with this? So now we turn the corner from interpretation to application. And it seems to me that there are four rather clear application principles that come out of this text. Learning, living, waiting, and working. I'll comment on each of those briefly. First on learning. Since God's grace in his word teaches us, it implies that we should be learning it. And when I say that, I mean learning it daily, deeply, seriously, systematically. <clears throat> I really believe Jesus, Jesus knew what he was talking about when he said in the verse I mentioned earlier, Matthew 4, 4, man shall not live by bread alone, physical nourishment, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. In fact, we might even back up. Did Jesus know what he was talking about? Was he right? I'm not trying to be cute or clever, but let's think about that. Jesus is telling us how we live. And by that, he doesn't mean just survive, but you know, thrive, how we flourish by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The inspired scriptures. That's our spiritual nourishment. That is our daily sustenance in the soul. And I urge you to be in God's word every day. And I don't mean just five minutes squeezed into the margin of your too busy schedule. I mean, dig into it. If that is your spiritual significance, your spiritual sustenance, why would we not? I presume that we all eat three times a day physical food or more. 
Five minutes in the spiritual food will not give you stability in the soul. Don't starve your soul. Better to go a day without physical food than a day without spiritual food. So number one is learning. Learning God's word. Number two, living. Application number one on learning implies that we live or apply what we learn. Jesus' little half-brother James wrote that letter of James near the end of our New Testament. I say half-brother because they had the same mother but not the same father because of the virgin birth. And um, James was a, a, a very direct kind of writer. And he writes in chapter 1, 23 through 25, if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, He's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, phrasing for the scriptures, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. As Jesus' little brother, I wonder where James first heard this idea of living what you learn. We know that Jesus' siblings did not become believers in Jesus, the way we think of that, until after the resurrection. But I would bet that they heard many lessons from big brother Jesus growing up in the same home. Can't you just imagine, let's say Jesus is 12 and James is, let's say, 10, and then they, in age, they trickle on down. They're 8 and they're 7 and 5. And Jesus gathers them together and he says, hey, come on in here. We're going to have family Bible time. And he opens up the scriptures, which at that time would have been just the Old Testament. He would teach through it and say, now remember, we've got to do what this says. I bet that's where James first heard that. I don't know. I'm speculating. When we get to heaven, we'll look up James. We'll ask him. But I bet that's where he first heard that idea. And, of course, when he writes this statement we just read, that's inspired by the Spirit. But I bet, humanly speaking, he heard that as a boy from his big brother. So number two is living what you learn. Number three, waiting, waiting. Our life context is waiting for Jesus to come back. So we don't just exist in a mindless vacuum with no purpose to guide us in life like so many around us. We wait in confidence that our full and final redemption when Jesus returns on that white horse. Jesus is coming back and he wins. And in him we win too. Just like when you think of your favorite sport team, it's late in the game, your team's way behind, if you already know the final score and that you win, eh, you can relax. You don't have to be panicked because you know the final score of the game. We know the final score. And that gives us courage because we know the outcome. Like Paul in Acts 20, 24, he was being warned that if he goes up to Jerusalem, he might be killed. And his response, I'm going to condense this now. His response was, I don't care as long as I can continue to carry out the mission that God has given me to proclaim the gospel of the glory of God. So we can risk our lives 
for Jesus. And it's better to risk your life than to waste it. Don't waste it. It's better to lose your life for Jesus than to waste it. Don't waste your life. And the time to do something about that and to figure that out is now at your age rather than at my age. There's not a whole lot of difference I can make at this age. But at your age, you got 50 more years to make a difference and not waste your life. So number three is waiting. Number four, working. While we wait, we work. We seek good works to do. Rather than focusing on what we want, we look for things we can do for others' benefit. As Paul wrote in Philippians 2.4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Also Galatians 6, 9 and 10, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we don't give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Learning and living, waiting and working is one way to describe the Christian life. May God give us the grace to obey his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our brother Paul and that your spirit inspired him to write this great paragraph to Titus and and thus for us. And we would ask, Father, that we would be sensitive to your spirit to obey the things that Paul wrote and that we would seek to live in a manner that he said and that we would pursue the word of God and apply it in our lives. And Father, I pray for each of those here tonight that they would be sensitive to your spirit's guidance in their lives and that they would seek not to waste them but to live them to your glory. And I commit each of them into your hands, Father, for your glory and their good. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.